right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast, sponsored by Roughneck Scarves. This is podcast number 281. With that number, we'll give a shout out to Carly Lloyd. She earned her 281st cap last summer in the 2019 Women's World Cup Final. That was her third straight appearance in a Women's World Cup Final. And hey, just recently, she scored her 123rd international goal in the USA's opening game of the She Believes Cup against England and earned Player of the Match honors. All right, two chats this week, and the first one in this episode is with Tyler Nguyen of the recently launched Rose City Review. This new independent website covers Portland Thorns as well as Portland Timbers. Tyler and I reviewed the many roster changes that have happened over the last few months for the Portland NWSL franchise. And then I caught up with Chris Hockman, my longtime Aussie correspondent, to talk about Olympic qualifying for Australia and the upcoming W League playoffs. We also talked a bit about Australia's joint bid with New Zealand for the 2023 Women's World Cup. And of course, in between the two chats is my new recurring segment called Jensplaining. This week, the discussion is She Believes Cup Tiebreakers. And of course, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at MixZone with two X's and also Keeper Notes. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with a first time guest on the mix zone, Tyler Nguyen from Rose City Review, a new website for Portland soccer. And Tyler, I'm so excited to have you on and and hear about Rose City Review. I'm really excited to be on. So tell Uh, me, tell me how how you got involved in in covering soccer and, and how Rose City Review came about. So I started covering the Thorns a couple of years ago with uh, the SB Nation fan site here in Portland. And uh, a couple of us who write for that site have uh, gotten together and decided to go independent and start our own soccer website. And it's called Rose City Review. We uh, want to fund it ourselves, want to run everything ourselves. And uh, you can get online at uh, Rose City Review. Rose City Dot Review is where you can find us. Now, is it just thorns or is it thorns and timbers or is it anything that's soccer in the Portland area? It's mostly thorns and timbers. Uh, we've got uh, two timbers writers and three thorns writers. And yeah, I mean, we're not going to necessarily restrict ourselves, but those are the uh, main areas of expertise, I would say. Well, and it'll be great that you guys have the Portland Invitational coming up. So lots of not only Portland soccer, but it means you get the U.S. U23s in town, as well as Chicago Red Stars and Rain FC. Oh, yeah, that's always a really exciting tournament. Um, you know, the the uh, the Thorns Invitational a couple of years ago is where I first got to see uh, Katarina Macario in the in the flesh and in, in person. Oh, wow. That's yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, the U23s will basically be any of the uh, like current college stars who aren't old enough to be drafted, I guess, yet or something like that. We'll see. But anyway, I, I wanted to start with, uh, you know, Portland's offseason. I think it's been one of the most interesting offseasons to follow because it's following what what most clubs would think was a successful season, right? Like you make the playoffs, you finish third in the standings. But for Portland not good enough having hosted a semifinal the previous three seasons, having made the final and won one of them the previous two seasons. So talk about, um, you know, 
where the fans felt where you as someone who covers the team were kind of following that semifinal and, and walk us through all the moves that the club has made because it's it it seems like it is a whole new era for the Thorns roster. It definitely is. This is the biggest set of changes that have happened since uh, Parsons has been at the club. Um, you know, last season was really interesting because it, this, the first part of the season was so successful relatively to what we had expected what was going to happen when everybody was gone for the first part of the year at the World Cup. And then everybody got back and then it the, something seemed to stall out. We don't 100% know what happened, but the vibe around the club just wasn't exactly the same. Um, and the, as a result, a pretty big change set of changes have been uh, taken underway. And, uh, you know, I don't know exactly where some of the uh, some of the thinking is on some of this, but it, that, I'll talk through it and then maybe we can figure it out. A yeah. Bit. Yeah. you got to kind of break down the pieces and then step back and maybe look at it as a whole. Exactly. So Emily Sonnet is out to the Orlando Pride for the number one pick in the draft, which became uh, Sophia Smith. Uh, and, and, of course, and of course, it was funny that uh, Sonnet herself was a number one pick four years ago, again, with having Portland having traded some big pieces to Orlando. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then symmetry. We had uh, Caitlin Ford also was included in that deal. And uh, although she was not go on to play for uh, Orlando, right. she's uh, in Arsenal now. We had Andresinha and Rasso leaving for uh, uh, overseas. Rasso going to Everton and uh, Andresinha heading back to Brazil. Midge and Perth got traded to uh, Sky Blue for Raquel Rodriguez. That one I thought was the most interesting, right? Mm. That, uh, you know, Raquel having spent the last four seasons, her first four seasons in NWSL with Sky Blue, you know, the number two draft pick in that 2016 draft, like this could be a career changer for her. Where Midge Purse, like last year was her first year as a regular starter, right? So I, it'll be, I think, really interesting to see how she does at Sky Blue, whether she can carve out maybe a space in the you know usual 24 to 26 players called up to the national team. But talk mm-hmm. about what Purse provided for the Thorns in 2019 that's going to have to be replaced. Well, Purse was a really big part of how well the team was doing at the first start of the, the start of the season. Um, she was a, as a direct presence up top was able to kind of be a point in the offense uh, when maybe a lot was a lot else was not really happening around her, she's able to create a lot by herself. She's you probably have seen the multiple videos of her nutmegging people and sprinting past them. <laughs> yeah, it, she's great at that kind of energetic being that kind of energetic presence up top. And it frankly, it's hard to be a forward in Portland. You know, there's a lot of expectation on strikers here just because of the kind of supporting midfielder talents and the, the it feels like at times there's a perception that, uh, you know, everything else is so good. So why isn't the forwards uh, amazing as well, but right. it's a tough job. 
And, and the league, as we know, is always it, it's so competitive, even when it does seem like it's always the same teams on top and the same teams on bottom. We've we've seen how close games can be. Absolutely. Yeah. So it, Purse, she really shown when it was her kind of driving, uh, driving a team on. And, and I think she'll shine in that role in Sky Blue. You know, I'm excited to see what she can do with Carly Lloyd there. I think it's going to I think she's going to relish being in the spotlight as one of the key performers for them. Definitely. And then you also have um, a couple other international departures, Anna Maria Cernogorcevic and Dagny Brynjar's daughter. Mm. Um, you know, I, I feel like Cernogorcevic just, you know, never exploded into the powerhouse that maybe they expected that she would be. And, and it was clear for Dagny that it, it was just, it wasn't, it was untenable for her to try to have a, a bi-continental relationship and a child, right? Yeah. It, Dagny Brynja's daughter's Instagram post explaining her decision was a, uh, it was tough because, you know, it, I can, I can't imagine what it's like to kind of have to, raise a child, you know, yeah. so far away from home while you're trying to make your career happen. Um, uh, you know, so I totally understand her decision. Uh, and Anna Maria Cernogorsovic, you know, bummer to see her to go. She was a good presence around the team. She brought a lot, I think, to the locker room. And she was, she proved, even if she wasn't the sort of striker, dynamic striker presence up top that uh, some people thought she might be when she joined the team, uh, she filled in a lot and, you know, was played some games at right back. And, uh, you know, her energy was definitely valuable, but I think the club really needed that international spot back more than anything else. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's why, again, it's been so interesting to see these moves through the off season. It's like, wow, that player is getting like, who are they going to get to replace? And, you know, you're always hearing whispers about, well, Portland must be talking to X or they're probably going to get the player from this team. And, you know, we're on the verge of preseason, but of course, we're still in the middle of an international window, but I would imagine, you know, we'll be hearing over the next week or so, some, some very intriguing announcements, you know, but then I also look at the domestic players uh, who, uh, as far as I know, have not re-signed a new contract yet, like Megan Klingenberg, Catherine Reynolds, you know, Britt Eckerstrom, who have been, you know, key figures, if not in the starting lineup as that, that bench player, like, you know, Britt coming on for the 10 games where Adriana French was gone, you know, and, and holding down the fort, literally. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Britt Eckerstrom has improved a lot over the past couple of years. Uh, she's a, definitely a, a starting quality player in the league. I mean, I say that, but there's a lot of starting quality players in the league that aren't starting. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> which is why we're so ready for expansion, right? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of talent waiting, uh, waiting on the benches of especially the Thorns and some of the other teams around the league as well. And then um, I wonder too, like... You know, Kelly Hubley, Celeste Bure, again, domestic players who have been such key pieces for Mark Parsons, especially in a World Cup year. And so, of course, Olympic year is going to be um, similar. Like, you know, I, I'm assuming they're going to sign, right? I, I'm, I'm assuming it's just like a paperwork issue or, you know, or they're working through stuff or making a decision of like, do I want to play one more year? You know, right. But it's, it's like, it surprised me when I looked at the rosters that I track uh, for all the team of like, 
wow, are there really this many players from Portland's 2019 roster who have not yet signed new contract? Now, obviously, I could wake up tomorrow morning and there could be a huge press release <laughs> from the Thorns of like, these four players have signed. But I just, I thought, I thought that was interesting. And I wonder if that gives Mark Parsons room. Um, maybe he's negotiating a lot of different things, right? As you're trying to bring in replacement internationals, but, but what's, what's your thought on just the, it, the silver, it's, it's still a very transitional roster. Yeah, I think the the players who are are yet to sign contracts. What I imagine what's happening, and again, you know, so much of the NWSL contract stuff we just have no insight into at all. Right, right. But I imagine it's probably like trying to stack salaries Tetris like, anticipating <laughs> the arrival of some. That's other a good. That's a good visual. It, it's definitely a game of Tetris. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so I think maybe a couple of pieces have to fall for everything to be finalized. I would be surprised if uh, at least most of those players didn't return. But uh, I mean, I'm not, you know, nothing's necessarily taken for granted at this point with this club because of all the departures. Yeah, I mean, when I looked at that list, I I felt like I was like, I can't see them leaving the club. So that's probably just, you know, a paperwork issue. And then, of course, we've buried the lead, but everybody already knows the lead that, uh, you know, the Sauerbrunn trade uh, finally became official this week. So Becky Sauerbrunn coming to Portland, where she's actually had an apartment for several years. (laughs) So in a way, she's coming home, even though she's originally from St. Louis. And Elizabeth Ball and some allocation money heading over to Utah. Now, Elizabeth Ball, undrafted, mm. but still brought into camp by the Thorns and and ended up having some pretty solid performances. So, so talk about a player like that and how, I mean, like, I, I feel like Parsons does have a knack for, let me look at the undrafted players and, and find that diamond in a rough who actually has something to contribute. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a big part of how the club thinks about itself. And and Parsons loves the kind of developmental aspects of the game. So in that sense, like the club and the the coach are on the same page. And I mean, the Thorns love bringing in undrafted talent. Celeste Bure was undrafted. um, Mm -hmm. Manashim back in the day. Uh, You know, the, the the club's really prides itself, I think, on being able to take players and, and turn them into league quality performers and elizabeth ball was a, a player that the club had had their eye on during the draft to possibly make a move for if somebody was threatening to do something <laughs> but uh they ended up getting her for free and they they were really high on her last year i, I mean people might remember her getting nutmegged by Kristen press last year as her most highlight moments, <laughs> which is unfortunate because she really had a good year going up against some tough defensive assignments, uh, really being kind of proactive and, and being the defender who was kind of tasked with going up to the, the, the toughest assignment and, and trying to handle it. Yeah. And, and then to get Becky Sauerbrunn, I mean, it's a great trade. I think it actually works well for all involved, right? Like Utah, I agree. They, they know they have a lot of starters over 30. They know they needed to get younger, right? Sauerbrunn wanted to go home. She's towards the end of her career. She could be a good short-term fix for some of the defensive issues, um, you know, that, that Portland had last year. And I, I mean, I think about a combo of Emily Menges and Becky Sauerbrunn and that just, that sounds great. 
Yeah, I, it's a it's a combination that uh, a lot of Portland fans have been kind of dreaming about, although maybe not in this context for quite a while. You <laughs> yeah. know, yeah, they were probably hoping that Menges would join Sauerbrunn on the national team. Right. Yeah, that never quite panned out. But uh, no, I mean, it's it's a great signing for the Thorns, I think. Uh, you know, it, it, Sauerbrunn is a player who is going to improve the Thorns defense. And, you know, the, the club, I think, is confident in their ability to find talent that is, is younger and keep bringing them in. Um, but I mean, it's, it's going to be a big impact on this team, no doubt about it. Uh, can I just say, by the way, you know, I don't think this, this deal really happens unless allocation money is introduced this year. That is a really great point because I don't think Portland would have been able to, would have wanted to give up as many players and or roster spots to make a trade like that happen. That's a great insight. You know, it's, it's the thing that I was thinking about when when allocation money first got announced, everybody was really excited for the potential for how much that money could be used to spend on international talent or, you know, trying to pay longstanding, really talented domestic players uh, wages that they, they weren't going to get if they if they stayed in the league otherwise. Uh, but. I think the most important thing that it, it provided for the clubs was just an, an asset to be traded because there had yeah. been a real deficit of those in the league. And an asset that you could break down in many different pieces. And and I, and I have seen, I mean, locally from Houston, how it's like when they started off, they're like, we've got nothing to trade, right? Like we had to build a team. So we had to use our draft picks. We acquired these player via expansion draft. And the people obviously don't want them back. So what do we have to trade? <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, so exactly. it, I, I think that's going to be huge for, especially for the new teams that come, you know, Louisville next year and whoever else joins them down the line that you'll have so many different pieces to work with. And I, and I really like that we're starting to get the details publicly of X amount of allocation dollars were traded. And then there's also this, these conditional dollars and yeah. So you've, you've got a little bit more sense of, of how rosters are built internally. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, it's, I, I don't know how this team is going to line up this year. That's my big question. <laughs> we got well, all this new talent, but I'm not a hundred percent sure how it fits together. Well, we, we know, Mark Parsons isn't done, right? We we know he's still out there uh, looking for some international replacements, um, you know. And and as we mentioned, there's players who are as yet unsigned that I would be surprised if they if they didn't sign. You've also got not only the number one draft pick, you've got the number two overall draft pick. This is the first time we had a team have both number one and number two. So the number one pick that that Portland traded with Orlando for Sophia Smith, someone who is already, you know, getting called into the senior camp on a regular basis. Of course, she's with the U twenties right now for U 20 qualifying. Um, and, you know, not as heralded, but still, I think an amazing acquisition is Morgan Weaver out of Washington state. So talk about what you think having the top two rookies can do for the thorns. I mean, how do you, how do you, blend them into this culture or, or is Mark Parsons starting a whole new era of the thorns? You know, it's funny um, to, it is a start of a new era, but at the same time, 
both of these players feel very much kind of in the lineage of a Mark Parsons forward, Thorns forward player. Mm-hmm. You know, you have Morgan Weaver, who is, I've seen her described as a tank, you know, uh, <laughs> really powerful. This is a classic kind of Thorns forward winger player who is, you know, strong, capable of, of being a pest and uh, really capable of kind of making things happen, stretching the field for Tobin Heath by, you know, really you can't making it so that you can't leave her alone on the other side. Right. Right. And well, I also think have been able to pull in a player similar to Emily Sonnet four years ago, where even though Sonnet was already capped, but she was just capped, you know, Smith has been in that national team camp, right? You're, you're pulling in a player who, has some experience and maturity that most players coming straight out of college don't. Definitely. Oh yeah. Sophia Smith. I'm unbelievably excited to see what she's like on the field and see more of her, her talent and her ability with the ball at her feet. I mean, it seems like she's got quite the skill set from what I've been able to see. Um, You know, the Thorns really need, you know, what they love in forwards is is the power, but also the the ability kind of combines together. This is the dream of the Thorns forward. Uh, <laughs> Caitlin Ford really was the that was the real swing for the fences that the, the the club wanted to make work as much as possible, and she could have done it, but th- she had some setbacks during her time at the club. And uh, you know, I wish her the best over in, at Arsenal, but uh, I think I think that that. You know, when Parsons and when the club goes looking for forwards, they're looking for players like this, you know, the both that can meld the kind of power and, and pace of of classic American soccer with some uh, some deft ability as well. Well, and speaking of forwards, uh, though, she doesn't always exactly play way up top. Christine Sinclair, who now is coming into her eighth season with Portland, one of the very small number of players who's been with the same club every season alongside Port- Portland Thorns teammate, uh, Tobin Heath, you know, now she's all time leading scorer in mm-hmm. international soccer history. She's, you know, knocking on the door of 50 goals for Andy Bussell and she just needs a couple more goals to put her as the all-time leading scorer in American pro soccer. Wow. Because with, with, her, with her WPS plus NWSL, it, it would put her over Sam Kerr. I mean, she could hang around a couple more, you know, seasons and maybe pass Kerr. But if you put the, you know, just like across all leagues, like her staying power to me is just so impressive, right? Like she just puts her head down and just keeps going. I wouldn't put it past her to, to come up to find a way to stick around for a while longer either. I mean, you know, she's not going to give up easily. And the most impressive thing uh, I've seen from, from being around her for a couple of years is just the way she's constantly trying to reinvent herself. I think that's amazing. And in, in, in a player, you know, at the stage of the career where she's at, she's really always looking to kind of improve herself and improve how she relates to her teammates and uh, you know, that the decision to, to allow herself to drop back a little bit further, a couple of years back uh, into the 10 role has, you know, it, it's interesting. It's, it's brought out this whole other side of her game and uh, you know, watching her go up and win headers in midfields on a regular basis. Um, maybe not what I, what, what we all thought she was going to be doing a couple of years back, but uh, she's, she's tough and she's, 
I'm not going to put it past her to eventually move into center back for the team, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whatever she has to do for the team, she'll definitely do it. Well, last, last question for you, Tyler, uh, Portland opens its 2018 or sorry, 2020 regular season on April 18th at home um, against Utah. So I love that it'll be Becky's old team, right? And it's also the team that kind of started that tough end of the season for the Thorns, right? I think you remember that that away loss the Thorns had at Utah, where yeah. it was Sauerbrunn who had, you know, the game winning goal. Um, just like I, I think that's a great matchup to start off the season, but how, how do you think that's going to play out? Oh yeah. They nailed that one. <laughs> it's a perfect matchup. Uh, <laughs> you know, Utah, they're going, they got a new coach. I'm really interested to see what Harrington can bring to the league. I think it's going to be a great game because they're both two teams who've gone through a lot of changes this off season and both teams are going to be figuring stuff out. But uh, you know, I'm. I think. The, I think Portland's going to win it. Listen, uh, Portland gets to open their season at home for the first time in quite a while because they've had the stadium construction for the past two years. Right. Right. Good point. So this is a. It's a big day when uh, when that home opener rolls around. It's going to be a big day for the club to really be able to start their season at home for the first time in a while. I feel like spirits are going to be high. You know that that the the club sort of felt that. The, it, it was kind of weird starting on the road for uh, two seasons in a row for, for a lot of players. <laughs> well, and, and it's, it's an interesting lineup that day. So there's three games and they don't overlap at all. So you've got Washington spirit, you know, in Audi field in DC hosting mm. the rain. Then you've got Carolina, Chicago, a rematch of the final played in North Carolina early mm. evening. And then the nightcap of thorns versus Utah, like, no, don't make any plans for that day. That's oh, going to no. be an awesome day of women's soccer. But Tyler, thank you so much for for taking the time to talk about the Thorns. And, you know, I wish you much luck with Rose City Review. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a real pleasure to get to chat with you. Um, a fan of your podcast and a fan of your work. So it was a real great, to, <laughs> it was great to be able to be invited on here. Right, time for a little gensplaining. Today's topic, She Believes Cup Tiebreakers. So as with as is traditional with tournaments, a win is worth three points, tie is worth one. And since this is a round robin tournament with no chance of extra time, there are a series of tiebreakers to determine the final standings if any teams end up tied on points. So the first tiebreaker is goal differential for all games played. And this is sometimes called goal difference. This is what it sounds like. The difference between goals scored and goals allowed. The next tiebreaker is total goals scored in the tournament. So for instance, if you look at the She Believes standings after the first matches, the first match day, USA and Spain are tied on points with three and also on goal differential plus two. They've scored two more goals than they've allowed. But Spain has scored three total goals, USA two total, so Spain is currently in the top position. After goal differential and total goals, the next tiebreaker is head-to-head. And the final tiebreaker is fair play points. In other words, the team with the fewest yellow and red cards would have the advantage. Pretty simple for the tiebreakers, but a good thing to know before you get into the last match day. 
Got a question for the Gensplainer? Email it to keeper at keepernotes.com. All right, Jen Cooper, the Keeper here with Chris Hockman, my favorite Aussie Woso expert um, who travels the world, mostly from Florida. Ha ha. Um, you know, just staying on top of Aussie soccer, right, Chris? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's, you know, time differences make it hard sometimes, but um, thankfully ESPN Plus exists now, so it makes it a lot easier. I feel like I've been able to watch much more W League soccer live this season than previously, or is that just, is that true, or does it just feel that way? Uh, no, I, I think it's true. I think um, there's been some earlier games, which has made it easier to watch live. Um, compared to previous seasons. And then, you know, even back in the day, you know, if you wanted to watch games live, you'd be on a dodgy stream because nobody actually aired it in the, in the U.S. Right. despite places having the rights. So um, now with ESPN+, Plus, you know, okay, you still can't get every game, um, but you get a lot of them. Um, and if you don't watch it live, you can watch it on delay. So there's definitely the opportunity yeah. there for it. Yeah, and I have gotten some use out of the. I think it's the One Football app that's that mm-hmm. the FFA puts out. Yep. Um, that that has a lot of handy streams on it as well. But before we get into W League, I want to talk about the Matildas. Um, they're basically on the cusp of qualifying for the 2020 Olympics. They've got uh, two game series with Vietnam home and away coming up, and of course, by the time this recording comes out. The, the first game should be done. Um, but basically you're in the semifinals for Asia, right? So you've got two pairings, China, South Korea, Australia, Vietnam, of course, China, South Korea, they've delayed for another month, but one of the two teams, either Australia, or Vietnam, they'll, um, what's, what's been your thoughts on the qualifying process for Australia so far? Yeah, it's been uh, like, you know, I think we talked about this time four years ago um, mm-hmm. about how completely insane um, the qualifying process was. For those who don't remember, it was all the top teams in Asia were in one group. Uh, they played it over, I think it was a week. It was just a week, right? And it, was it, was, like, it was like six games in 10 days or something like that. Yeah, like you just played an insane, you played essentially every other day. So it was like, uh, you know, the college, the... Uh, the college cup, essentially. You but know, even the, worse. <laughs> like but extended like, but college yeah, cup. Instead of playing just two games, you're playing uh, six and you're playing the best teams in the region, one of whom had recently won a World Cup. Um, it was just absolutely brutal. And, you know, um, and for pretty much, you know, for Vietnam and Australia, the travel involved to get to Japan for that was, uh, was pretty intense. Um, so it was unsurprising that you know it was it was difficult for Vietnam <laughs> having to travel that far and play a game every other day. It was just so brutal and so close to the and only as well. only two teams and only two teams qualified out of that tournament. Now this year is a little different because with Japan being the host, um, you take one of the good teams out of the mix. So it's there's still two Asian berths other than the host. So a little bit better chance for everybody involved and obviously a much better format, though not perfect. Yeah, and it was, it was a much bigger tournament on the whole too, which is exciting, right? Like we're seeing a lot more Asian countries competing in these kind of tournaments. You know, we saw Mongolia, 
come out and compete and a lot of other countries. Okay, UAE and Macau withdrew and uh, DPR Korea eventually withdrew. But, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of growth in um, in the depth in Asian football. Um, so it's exciting. You know, Palestine hosted um, the first round and advanced. Um, so it's, you know, there's a lot going on. And that was exciting. Um, did make for a bigger tournament, which meant that the AFC, I think, were forced to make it a bit of a fairer tournament because you had to play so many games to give everybody a shot, everybody a path to Tokyo. Yeah, so many more rounds to be played. So, I, I mean, no disrespect to Vietnam, but I but I can't imagine that Australia won't um, clinch a berth for the Tokyo Olympics. Yeah, you would you would imagine so. Um, Matilda's coach, Ante Militich, is going out of his way to say uh, Vietnam is a lot better than people give them credit for, and you know they're they're really technically good, and they're we you know they're going to defend. Let's be real about that. They're going right. to absorb pressure and try and try and get them on the on the counter, um, and that's you know, I think we saw that in the the World Cup that that's where Australia is vulnerable um, is being yes. caught out. So. Um, it's it's good that he's aware of that, and you know, I mean, he's at the heart of it. He's trying to sell tickets. Um, you know, you want yeah. you want it to be a contest. You want to bill it as oh, you know, it's not going to be as as easy as everybody thinks it's going to be. It's not. You know, the, we we've seen countless times, and you know, I, I don't need to remind uh, American soccer fans of of an upset in a qualifier. Um, yeah. So yeah, we could Vietnam win this. Yeah, they could. They probably won't, um, but... Well, and it's you know, tougher when it's a two-game series, right? So yeah, it's, what's, it's not what's what's one so game, odd. it's actually two. And what's odd is that Australia comes in, so Australia won their group, um, but is hosting the first leg, which, in my opinion, is odd, um, because they, they won... Did they request the that? <laughs> I, my understanding is they didn't, but I don't know for sure. I, I don't think... I would imagine Australia would have preferred to play the second leg at home. Right. You know what you have to do, and then worst case, it goes to penalties, but at least you're playing penalties at home. Um, But we'll see. I I don't know why they they did it that way, but they... But that's how they did it. I mean, and what, it's, it's, what are the you know, tiebreaker rules, just in case we need to know them? So say it's tied on aggregate at the end of the second game. How does Asian qualifying handle that? Is it is the tiebreaker away goals or is it something yeah, else? Yeah, it'll go, it'll go or do, away Or do they goal. go to extra time? Yeah, it'll go away goals. And then, um, and then you know, if that's still a tie, extra time penalties like standard. Uh, World Cup qualifying. So Milicic actually talked this week about we can't concede an away goal um, because you know, if you concede one and then Vietnam, if it's 2-1 to Australia and Vietnam scores early, um, they're really going to shut up shop. So um, yeah, it'll be it'll be really fascinating. Well, and of course, Australia is already, you know, planning ahead. They've got what a game against Canada, a game against the U.S in that April FIFA window. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got Ante Milicic. He's been at the helm for a year now. Uh, I mean, do you feel like the players are, are really comfortable with him? I mean, it, it was a pretty rough transition in the way that the Federation got rid of the previous coach. But, you know, what's what's the feeling around the team now? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I think we're going to never really know what the uh, mood around the team is because they'll never, ever talk about it ever again after what happened in Europe. <laughs> Um, you know, <laughs> that's, um, that's a good point. Yeah, they, will, they don't they want, they want any good survey. coach to get fired. Yeah. Um, so you know, but I, I think things have gotten better. There were definitely some rocky moments. I think the the World Cup, Australia definitely underwhelmed. Uh, I think uh, Australians were more expectant um, going into that tournament, and to get knocked out in the second round was, especially after such a good showing four years before that. Uh, was disappointing, right. but I think you put that down. Well, to, and well, you and I years ago, we're like, we're like uh-huh. you and I years ago, we're like, it's going to be Australia France in the final. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I was I was saying it until they sacked the uh, until the FFA made the decision it made. Um, you know, it it, it was hard. Milicic was always on a hiding to nothing. Um, you know, if he didn't win the World Cup, everyone was going to say, um, well, this is what you get um, when you make that decision. Um, and then if he won the World Cup, everyone would just say, oh, yeah, but, you know, it was Stadge's team. You didn't do anything. You just built on the success yeah. that Stadge had. So, damned, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah, it was, there was nothing he was going to do. I think now the team seem more settled, whether whether Milicic is the standard that Stadjic was um, remains to be seen. There were definitely some rocky moments in uh, in the group stage of this tournament. Um, Australia's only playing Vietnam because of a stoppage time goal of Emily Van Egmond. Um, had that right. not been a goal, Australia would be playing South Korea, and I think you'd be looking at a lot more. Right. Um, it'd be a lot more up there. It's, it's obvious that that's the one where you're like, oh, it could be, could be China, could be Korea. Uh, we don't know. Um, I would definitely, so, you know, that goal from Van Egmond was vital. And I think on paper, you would have said, oh, Australia is going to, you know, easily beat China, especially in Australia. As a reminder, that that tournament was supposed to be played in China, um, but they moved it to Australia at the last minute. Um, It was actually originally supposed to be in Wuhan uh, to make it even worse. So, um, right. And then all the Chinese players had to be quarantined. Yep, yep, it was Wuhan, then they moved it to Nanjing. Uh, then four days later, they said, actually, we're going to play it in Australia. Um, <laughs> and then, um, yeah, the Chinese Football Association gave up their rights. So I want to make that pretty clear. It was China that made that decision, not not the AFC. Um, and then Australia put their hands up and said, well, we got, we got some nice stadiums in Sydney that we can host it in. And so they hosted it in Campbelltown and the new stadium in Western Sydney. Um, and then, you know, so they put their hand up. I think having that home advantage might have been the difference in that game. Um, you know, Emily Van Egmond, but it was a rough time. It's because of the late changes, it made for a rough draw. So Australia specifically had to play three games in less than a week, um, which is still better than four years ago, but it, it's difficult, um, especially when you win the first two 7 0 and 6 0. Um, you've really got to get it together for that last yeah. game. Yeah, those games don't pre- prepare you for for a finale against a game like China. Well, yeah. and another thing on Australia's horizon is in a few months we'll know who's going to host the 2023 Women's World Cup with Australia one of the bids and and I would think would be one of the leading bids. Of course, it's it's a joint bid now, right? With with New Zealand. 
Yeah, I think I think the joint bid decision was a really smart move. Um, you get OFC on board, you get the chance to go to FIFA and say, look, this is your chance to put a senior tournament in Oceania because they're never going to do that with the Men's World Cup. New Zealand exactly. is never going to exactly. have the Men's World Cup. Um, so you exactly. get a chance to say here, look, look, this is your chance. You can put the uh, you can put a senior World Cup in Oceania. Think about how much good that's going to do for the region, um, and and do it like that. Um, I think the if Australia wins it, if Australia and New Zealand wins it, I shouldn't disrespect New Zealand by leaving them out. Um, if they win this bid, it's it's an almost especially if it's a tight vote, it's going to come down to the fact that New Zealand joins the bid. Um, just to make it a more palatable bid for those on the fence. But we'll see. I think I think Japan's a great bid. Um, there's no denying that giving it to South America would do a lot for the sport there. Um, but obviously I'm biased. Uh, I think the Australian New Zealand is the best <laughs> bid. Um, they've never, of, of the bidding countries, Australia and New Zealand are the only two that, you know, are never really going to host a, a bigger tournament than this. You know, this is the biggest tournament Australia's going to get uh so right i think give it give it to a country that's going to really respect it and not just see it as a stepping stone to the next event um you know but that's it japan will be fresh off hosting the olympics so it's it's hard to hard to ignore that well and and i like your point about um you know oceana never having you know, they're never going to get them a men's tournament so here's a perfect way where sure the tournament's returning to asia but it's also Oceania. Um, and, I, and I look at Brazil as, as a contender, but um, they've recently hosted the Olympics. They've recently hosted the Men's World Cup. Um, you know, I, I, I do like the idea of it going to Australia and New Zealand. Now, the challenge there is really what that does for your ratings and, and the times of kickoffs, right? Like, because even if you put a World Cup in North or South America, you can still adjust the kickoff time so that it's prime time in Europe, right? So you're maximizing your most profitable broadcasters. But when you've got it in, in Japan or or Australia, you know, New Zealand, that's going to be tough. I think that's really the only thing that's uh, against them. Yeah, I, w- I would imagine that CONCACAF and Combabol will probably vote together for one of the South American bids. Um, and then the question is whether Australia and New Zealand get enough support from the other continents. Um, yeah, it's it's going to be fascinating bid process, I think. Um, but the you know, I, I as an Australian, I would just say to everybody that would be frustrated watching a tournament in Australia to suck it up. Um, it's what Australians have to do all the time. Um, it's about time they have a tournament in a friendly. Uh, in a friendly time zone uh, where they can yeah. actually not. Yeah. You know, I still remember the 2006 Men's World Cup leaving the bar at 6 a.m. in the morning after staying up all night to watch Australia play Croatia. And, you know, yeah. it's it's daytime and people are starting their morning commute and you're walking out from the bar having been there all night watching watching soccer. Yeah. So it would uh, be nice. That, that's what the, that's what the 2002 that. World Cup was for me in the, the 2007 Women's <laughs> World Cup. Yeah, yeah it's what <laughs> definitely. Made, it's what made 2002 such a sad thing for Australia not qualifying for that tournament and, you know, um, losing to Uruguay in the men's tournament. It was, you know, you 
there was this golden opportunity. They led one 0 after the first leg, and it was going to be in prime time in Australia. It was the chance, prime time, for the sport to be big. And then they lost to Uruguay and didn't get to go. Um, so you know, it'd be nice to have a tournament that they would, you know, even if it's in Japan, at least they'd be there. You know, you'd, you'd bank on the Matildas qualifying for a Women's World Cup. But you know, it'd be good to have it in Australia. I think the Matildas have done so much hard work, um, improved their rankings so much. It would be a a nice they've had some great sometimes. crowds. Yeah, I mean, you know, they've got a lot of great personalities. Crowds. Yeah, so you know, and New Zealand, New Zealand too has a lot of great personalities. And, they've and just never, great they've never really been elevated. Yeah, it's hard. I think, I think people look at New Zealand in the women's game and say, well, but they get a free pass to the World Cup. You know, they don't have to work for it. Like, I think World Cup qualifying for everybody is pretty tough. Maybe not Concacaf, um, but. You know, Europe, it's tough. South America, it's tough. Everywhere, it's tough. I think the Men's World Cup is less like that. Um, yeah. So people look at New Zealand. They, they're not really tested, and so it's hard for them to develop. So you know what would really help New Zealand develop? Hosting a World Cup. Forced to. Um, and then they'd get high-profile friendlies because people would want to come to New Zealand to play and get used to the conditions. So it, it would really help them yeah. get out. Um, I'm obviously biased, but, but I think uh, I think it's yeah. really the best bit on the table. Well, let's let's move on to to W League to to wrap up the conversation because uh, the W League in Australia just wrapped up its regular season, so we now know uh, the semifinal matchups, and it looks like it's an all Melbourne Sydney affair. Yeah, yeah, um, potential for a Melbourne or Sydney derby, which almost certainly means one of them will blow it, and we'll have a Melbourne versus Sydney. <laughs> Um, <laughs> fight, but um, you know, which would be a little disappointing from a ratings perspective. Um, yeah, um, Melbourne City again just walked the league. It's been a it's been a while since they've walked it like they have. I remember a couple of years ago we we'd we'd have these discussions every year, and every year we'd just say, oh, you know, the race is for second. Um, the race is for who's going to lose the least to Melbourne City. Um. And now, and then the last couple of years has been really competitive, um, which I think annoyed Melbourne City <laughs> to the point where they just, you know. Um, but tell me, tell me about City, City um, drawing Newcastle Jets, the the bottom dwelling team. What was that? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, there, there is still competitiveness in the league. Like, you know, they it's their one, uh, it's their one flaw all year is a is a draw with the Jets. It was also the opening round of the season. Um, uh, so, you know, you've got to blow, okay. you, you blow the cobwebs out. Um, and it was a 57th minute. So they led most of the game to City. Emily Van Eckbond scored in the 22nd and then Collister scored in the 67th. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, they, yeah, it was, it was first round of the season. Um, a lot of new players in that City squad. Um, so if you look at their results as the year, there was one one, then it was two one, um, then they were off. Then they then it was one nil against Adelaide, two one against Sydney. They didn't really start hitting their stride um, until later in the season. Uh, so yeah, I think if it happened in the twelfth or the thirteenth round, I'd get it. But by then, I, I honestly expected them to lose um, last weekend. Um, they sealed. They'd already sealed their place in the in the finals. They'd already sealed top spot. There was there was literally nothing to play for. I thought for sure uh, this will be the game. 
that they blow it. Um, and and they didn't. They were professional. They won three one. Um, admittedly against the Brisbane side, that's not great. Um, the the gap, the fifth, but the gap between fourth and fifth was uh, was pretty big this year. So, um, well, let's talk really... about fourth place uh, because yeah, that's that's pretty significant. Western Sydney Wanderers for the first time qualifying, you know, for the playoffs, um, and of course they get to play Melbourne City. But tell me uh, about the history of Western Sydney Wanderers. I didn't know until you you had mentioned it to me previously that. Just, just such of the history of that region in terms of providing players to the national team. Yeah, yeah, Western Sydney Wanderers. I mean, Western Sydney is is really the heartland of Australian football. I, I'm trying to think of a comparison in the United States because one has asked. Maybe New Jersey. Yeah, maybe Jersey. New Jersey or Kansas um, or Kansas yeah. St. Louis. Yeah, the one that comes to mind is St. Louis, right? Because a lot of ways it's the yeah. home of soccer in America. The older, um, the older, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, back in the day. Um, whereas Western Sydney has long been the heartland. Um, you know, it, part of that's migration. A lot of people, when they moved to Australia after the war, um, settled in the western suburbs of Sydney, and they set up their uh-huh. local clubs. And a lot of, uh, if a lot of people know this, in, in Australia, before we had the A-League, we had the NFL. Um, back when in Australia we uh-huh. called the sport soccer. And um, a lot of those clubs were based on ethnicity. So you had um, what used to be Sydney, Croatia, um, the Bonnie uh-huh. Rig White Eagles, um, which is Serbian, if you don't catch the reference. Um, yeah. And there was, uh, you know, so, and these clubs, a lot of these clubs were in the West Suburbs of Sydney. Um, you know, Marconi's the Italian club. I got a lot of friends in Marconi, so they'd be annoyed if I didn't say it. Um, but yeah, they, um, these clubs all have sprung up in the Western Suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne as well, um, but particularly Western Sydney. And so a huge, huge, huge number of of players for the uh, Australian national team, both men and women, um, came through the Western Suburbs of Sydney. Um, so it was a little surprising when the A-League launched that there wasn't a Western Sydney team, um, but there was no bid from the Western Suburbs of Sydney. It's a little hard to put a team in if you don't bid. Um, although that doesn't right. stop MLS putting Austin in the league. Um, <laughs> you know. um, so it's a little hard to do that. So you you can't put them in and then eventually there was a bid. They got in the A League and by extension, you typically get in the W League. Um, and so they immediately launched a women's team um, and people expect them to be fairly competitive. It's a competitive region, but of course, the W League had been going for a while at that point. And there was this established hierarchy of, uh, of great teams and nobody expected um, Western Sydney would make an impact quickly. And they didn't. Um, last year, they got four points. They won one game and had one draw, and now they're fourth. Um, it's a huge improvement from Western well, Sydney. And when I look at the players that they had this season from NWSL, like Kristen Hamilton, Denise O'Sullivan, Abby Smith, Lynn Williams, of course, Lynn Williams left the league early to join, you know, the U.S. for Olympic qualifying and, and for She Believes. But clearly they were they were making some serious investment in their uh, international players. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a phenomenal bit of work from uh, Western Sydney. They've done really well. Um, they, in fact, though, of all the teams in the W League, had the fewest visa players because um, they only had three visa players, Hamilton, Smith, and Stubbs, um, because O'Sullivan and 
O'Sullivan came as a guest player, so didn't count as a as a visa spot, and Lynn Williams only counted for part of the season. So they only had three mm-hmm. internationals on their books at this point, which means they've got the least of the whole of the whole league. Um, hmm. If you count City and the the rules around um, national players, um, they have six when you're only allowed four, but Rebecca Stott is a dual national and uh, Ali Watt was a guest player, so didn't count as a, as a foreign gotcha. player. So, um, and, and Ali you know, Watt joined late in the season because she just got drafted, uh, you yeah. know, coming out of Texas A&M. Yeah. So, so yeah. last question for you, Chris, um, predictions for, for the, these two semifinals. City hosting Western Sydney and Melbourne Victory hosting Sydney FC. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I would love a derby. Uh, I would love a derby, which means you'd have to say City Victory um, because I, I just can't see the Wanderers being City. However, I don't think that's going to happen. I think Sydney FC are going to do exactly what they did 12 months ago and uh, upset mm-hmm. the apple cart in the, uh, in the playoffs and make it to the final. So they, last year I was, I was in Australia at this time of year, so I got to see the W League final in person. But uh, last year, um, the, the playoffs in the, in the W League are so unpredictable because um, last year the league was so tight. So Perth Glory and Sydney FC were the final last year, which meant Sydney FC hosted. They were third and fourth last year. It was astounding. Um, and then Sydney, of course, went on to win it in a pretty phenomenal game in Sydney, winning 4-2. Um, so it's, it's hard to go against Sydney. They're a team that knows what to do um, when it reaches the playoffs. Their men's team and their women's team uh, know what to do in the playoffs. <laughs> um, they're hungry. Um, they really want to keep this double trend going. You know, they won the A-League last year. They won the W-League last year. They were they're they're winning the A-League in a canter in the uh, regular season. So they would love to keep that trophy cabinet well stocked um, and keep the trophy in Sydney. So my money's on, on Sydney to beat victory, um, which is a big game in itself. They're long-time rivals from day one. Um, so it's called the Big Blue. Um, so, yeah, I, I'll say I'll say City versus Sydney in the... Uh, to play the final, and you know my rule, you'd never bet against Melbourne City in the W League. So Melbourne City <laughs> to beat to beat Sydney FC in the W League. The um the game's going to be so these games are not this weekend. There's a week off, um, and then they'll they'll play the grand final on the twenty uh, first of March. And I'm just and I should have done this before. Just double checking um, if Melbourne City plays an A League game at home that week. They don't. They're on the road to the Central Coast Mariners. So um, they might even play it in the um, in the big stadium in Melbourne. But, uh, yeah, both games. Ooh. So both games this week are in Melbourne. Um, so both games will be in Melbourne. Um, and then uh, and then the question would be, does Sydney FC fly all the way back to Sydney? I guess it's not that far a flight. Go back to Sydney or do you just stay in Melbourne for the week and, and save yeah. yourself travel for the big game? But, um, yeah, I would, I would say City, Sydney in the final, City to win it. Um, and we should a, be able to watch all of these on ESPN Plus. Yep, they'll both be aired. All three games will be aired on. Basically, the rule on ESPN Plus is if it's aired on Fox Sports in Australia, it'll be on ESPN Plus. So um, both semifinals and grand final will be on 
Fox in Australia. So that means you'll, uh, you'll get to see him on ESPN Plus, which means um, if you want to sleep in on uh, on the weekend, you can watch it on demand, which is a, which is a nice feature of ESPN Plus. Oh, I love it. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about the Matildas and the Westfield W League. And and I, I'm curious to see if your predictions turn out to be right. They usually don't. So, um, you know, I think I have an 0 for 7 record on these. So we'll see. Right, time to wrap it up with the back four. We've got two more match dates coming up for the She Believes tournament. Both match days, double headers, of course. Um, and all games, including the non-USA games, are showing on one ESPN channel or outlet, either ESPN Plus, ESPN News, ESPN2, ESPN, CUSsoccer.com for the details. Sunday, we've got USA versus Spain, also Japan versus England. That'll be at Red Bull Arena in Harrison, New Jersey. I heard that's pretty close to sold out if it's not sold out already. Same thing goes for the finale of the tournament, which will be Wednesday, March 11th in Frisco, Texas, north of Dallas. That'll be USA, Japan, and also England versus Spain. And of course, last week we had the gift of the entire NWSL regular season schedule released, and I've been building a Google calendar of the entire schedule. Um, most of the regular season schedule is in, it's not entirely complete, but I have also been adding, uh, all of the preseason matches that the teams have been announcing. So you can find this Google calendar linked on keepernotes.com. Just click on the Woso nerd links, uh, link on the menu and Hey, hopefully we'll have a TV deal soon as well. And, you know, we're only about, what, five, six weeks away from the start of the 2020 NWSL season. So you better order your copy now of the latest Keeper Notes NWSL Almanac. This 350-page comprehensive guide to the NWSL's first seven season features a complete player and coach registry, stats by season, all-time player and team records, attendance averages, color photos, lots, lots more. You cannot get this info in one place anywhere else. So go to keepernotes.com. You can order a print version, PDF version, or both. And coming soon, uh, I will have a dash specific almanac as well. And who knows, maybe over time, a specific almanac for each club. And last, we do have the W League playoffs. They're now set, as I discussed in this episode with Chris Hockman. Second seed Melbourne Victory will host Sydney FC on Saturday, March 14th. And regular season champion Melbourne City will host first-time semifinalist Western City Wanderers on Sunday, March 15th. Both games will be available live and also on demand via ESPN+. Plus. That is the subscription service. It's only $5 a month. Totally worth it. You don't have to have a cable subscription or be connected to anything TV-related. Just simply $5 a month. Totally worth it. And the W League final will be played March 21st or 22nd, depending on who hosts it. All right, that's it for our episode today. Many thanks to our sponsor, Roughneck Scarves, the official scarf supplier to MLS, USL, and U.S. soccer. Also want to give a shout out to IcarusFC.com. If you're tired of the same old uniforms and cookie cutter templates from Nike and Adidas, IcarusFC can help you create the kit of your dreams at an affordable price. 
And of course, have to give a big shout out to all the listeners. I love the listeners that send me emails with questions. And of course, have to give a shout out to Sean for producing this podcast for me every week.